Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of the Digital CXO Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Bizard, and my guest today is Mitch Ashley, who's CTO for TechStrong Group, publisher of DevOps.com, Security Boulevard, and of course, Digital CXO. And of course, Mitch is one of the founders and major contributors to the TechStrong research team as well. Mitch, how are you doing? I'm doing real well, Mike. It's good to be talking with you. Let's get into this whole conversation about um, collaboration at the highest level in organizations seems to be a challenge. It may not come as a shock to you, but there's a survey put out by Atlassian that suggests that uh, business units are having a hard time getting aligned with IT folks to figure out how to push forward software development projects. There's a lot of miscommunication. Does any of this ring a bell with you? Have you seen or heard or experienced anything like this lately? Um, I think that's it's called Groundhog Day. Yes, <laughs> I'm a bit familiar with this. <laughs> without getting into all the technical details, but what do you think is at the root cause of this? Is this just organizational behavior and it's just insurmountable, or can we actually use collaboration tools to actually overcome some of this stuff? And do organizations need to focus on it? And if so, what's your best advice in that regard? Well, that's one of the challenges of, of the CIO or CXO is really thinking about the technology, but also the kind of business environment and culture. You know, I've been in organizations that were very much um, siloed, and it was kind of that way all the way from the executive down to the to, to the worker. And you were kind of known by you're this this kind of a person or this kind of a person. You know, I'm a Smith person or a Jones person. So. In other environments, it's very collaborative, and that's much more part of the culture. And of course, that's part of what things like DevOps introduce. But that's also where you run into the uh, the resistance or the buzzsaw of trying to make those things work. I think software, it, why it's become even more of an issue about collaboration is we've elevated the importance of software in our business strategies. You know, it is critical to almost every, if not every, business's strategy, both not just back office, but of course, how we can create and deliver and leverage software as part of our business strategy. So how do we get teams collaborating together? And I think it's first knowing your organization. I'm a big believer in use what the DNA is about of the organization. If you're you know, a huge email shop, don't try to push everybody into Slack or team. If you want to get people out of sort of the unthreaded conversations and something a little more understandable. Okay. Try to try to leverage some of those tools just to name a few. Uh, I think the software part of it though, the real underlying issue is alignment within the organization because everybody's running on their own RPM, their own impedance, their own whatever. And it, the flywheel is turning for every organization constantly. And how do you get those things to tar- start to synchronize so here's our goals. Here's, our, here's what we're trying to achieve in market. We're trying to fend off this competition, get this new capabilities out to market to be able to get into this new area of the market, whatever it might be. Um, but I, meanwhile, IT or software organization or five different software groups are all going off in their own direction. So I'm a big proponent of the key role of technology executives is to go find out what the, the real goals are. And it sounds colloquial, like easy, we should be doing that, but we don't. And the other side of it is it's, it's incumbent upon the executives, the leaders in the organization to make sure the organizations align, right? 
So if that's what we're here to do, then let's get all of us on the same measurable line of sight goals. I mean, the IT goals, the software team's goals aren't going to look exactly like, of course, the C-levels goals, but you should have some way of aligning that up. So otherwise, we're all without some of those things, you're just implementing new tools on top of old problems that probably are just going to suffer the own problems again. <laughs> yeah, I feel you're spot on. And I wonder if some of this just comes down to a lack of training. And when I think about things, um, much of the communications that we do fall into two categories. They're either synchronous, like this podcast is synchronous. We're having a mm -hmm. chat back and forth, and then they're asynchronous. And a lot of that stuff is an email. In theory, people were supposed to use Slack for more of a synchronous kind of communication with typing. And But <clears throat> when I look at it, it's just some of my email is now moved over to Slack because it's being used for an asynchronous conversation. And ultimately, I think people wind up with yet another communication channel to check every day, and they don't really have a sense of when to use it or what to use it for. There may be a warm feeling that somehow or other they're not looking at their email as much as they used to, but it's still some sort of message that they got from somebody that they're supposed to act on. And the issue becomes the topic at hand starts to fragment because now there's pieces of it in an email and pieces of it in another chat called Slack, and we're supposed to put that together somehow. And it, it could be Teams. It could be any of these things. It really doesn't matter. And so I wonder if we maybe have uh, not a failure to communicate, but just too much communication going on too widely, and we're not able to, as humans, organize that in our heads. Well, it's like we don't need a you know we don't need a two dollar bill in our in our wallet, right? <laughs> we don't need just yet another way to do the same thing. What, what sort of work that I've seen is one: think about where who you're communicating to. Salespeople don't do well with Slack or Team, is my experience. You know, it's one of the reasons why um, Chatter or whatever it's called on Salesforce Force wasn't a huge hit, is because they're talking externally. Their their job is to go talk to the customers, the prospects. That's that's all of their communications, and and there's some internally as well. But telling them to go live on Slack is you know a fool's errand. Um, on the other hand, you know, a team or a Slack or whatever tool is good for conversational kinds of dialogue. They may not be asynchronous, um, but they but they do they are an ongoing conversation that happens, and that can get lost really easily because people get added and dropped off of email threads and all that kind of thing. So my rule of thumb is I tell people, if you if you are having a, the third or fourth reply to an email and adding people to it, go move it and move the conversation into Slack and add email so you can get all the right people have visibility to it. If it's the simple communication, stay there, right? So it's easy to say it's hard to do. And I think it becomes just sort of the culture the DNA of teams. Software teams are used to doing this. They don't live in email. They live in chat, IRC, now Slack or team or whatever. So if you want to talk to them, go there. <laughs> That's the other principle, right? Don't make them go to you. You go to them. Um, on an enterprise scale, that's, that's a little bit of a different challenge, but those are at least some things I've seen that have helped work with that. But yeah, just adding another tool to the toolbox just makes a heavier toolbox. <laughs> And I think organizationally, people are challenged. A lot of C-level execs, they run their departments and they're not very comfortable with everybody in their department just having a 
uh, mm-hmm. direct communication with other people in other departments. A lot of the communications are stovepipe. They go up over the top and then across and then back down. And hopefully there's some synchronization at the back end. Do you think as companies evolve, though, we need to get to the point where the leadership is comfortable with just having their uh, report structure communicating horizontally, maybe not with them or through them, but around them and as part of it, just to increase that productivity that we need? I, I think that's spot on. It's it's A lot of it is how much you embrace, truly embrace transparency. You have to be comfortable. I mean, it's one of the benefits of Double-Edged Sword of you know, talking in a collaboration tool is people can choose to observe and be part of it or not, but people can choose to observe and participate. So you have to be comfortable with the transparency and, and there's always the kind of thing you bump up against of there's things you don't need to say in, in a collaboration tool where everybody can see it. And, you know, whether it's being, being on good behavior or, you know, when the CEO says something that has a different impact than, you know, if, this person over here says something. So, uh, you know, we've been around long enough and, and you, you probably have to have remember the days of my quote unquote secretary to use a term we don't use anymore for good reason, prints out my emails and then I'll write the response and they will go and reply for me. Right. I, I've worked in that environment. And my point being is we probably don't have a lot of people still in that we all sort of evolve in these generations of how we communicate, whether it was that way, whether it was, I'm going to write my slides out and have someone else create them for me to print them out. And I'll write my notes on it to I'll edit it myself to, I only do email or I can start to communicate and feel comfortable in Slack or, or teams, et cetera. It, it, there's a lot of factors here, right? And a lot of it is just, personal, generational, and I don't mean like a specific age group. I mean, how you learned how to communicate when you started your career and, and evolved. And a lot of those things stick with us and they don't fully change until you have a, a kind of a shift change and in, in people leading the organization. So it's an evolutionary process. It's not a, we got a new tool, everybody. Here's how we work now. Yeah, I think you're spot on. The issue is um, a lot of people are hoping that culture will evolve just because the tool is out there and then they think something good will happen. But I would argue we need to be a little more proactive and we'll see where we go. I also wanted to talk to you about AI ops. We're hearing a lot about artificial intelligence everywhere. And I think a lot of C-level execs are chomping at the bit going, hey, can we automate a lot of these IT processes? And so my first question to you is, is AI ops real or is this kind of a lot of wishful thinking or is it too hard to implement? And when we do implement it, the model drips and then we got to re-implement it. So what's practical here? Yeah, it, it's a good question. You know, AI has been around a long time and, you know, I used to do prologue and list programming back in the eighties. You know, that's how long we've been talking about, about AI and it's, it's rise to prominence of course has been primarily in our, in our worlds, primarily because of machine learning. And uh, while I'm not an AI expert by any stretch of the imagination, I worked some real, with some folks who really are. And a couple of things that I learned was that machine learning is, is, is possible. Most of it is when there's lots of data available. I mean, you can have supervised and unsupervised learning to kind of get into the vernacular. But unsupervised is go take all this data and then find the patterns, find the things that you can learn from it, you know, like 
the repair history of every time we go into someone's home to repair their telecommunication service or package delivery or whatever things that you're capturing lots of data. And of course, we're doing that all over the place. The, the, the interesting part of that is, well, how do you leverage it? How do you apply it? And I think the you know, terms get overused all the time, right? AI and machine learning, and we have that in our, everybody has it there in their, in their products now, whether it's a case statement or it's truly learning algorithms. Uh, and I think it's, it's, there's, there's kind of two factors. One is it's a, it's a process to build up your use of it. You can't just sit there and apply it to any situation. Let's make this smart by adding AI. Okay, well, how smart are you about adding AI? <laughs> you got to start there. You know, you got to you know, crawl, walk, run, but find the right places where you can actually implement that. One of the first AI expert systems that I worked on in the 80s was one to handle um, <laughs> in the mainframe environment, diagnosing when, I used to call it a bend, when people, when programs would quit when they crash and what happened. But we could do that because there was some really good data to do that with. I think the other factor in AI ops is, as you create these things, as you create these learning algorithms, now you got to manage it. It's it's a knowledge system and it does it isn't static. You don't just write code and then it goes stuff and life's happy. It, it's a model. It's representing you know a certain way of learning, of looking at the data of or if you're doing more like an expert system, um, then you really are cre creating a true model. And there are technologies and products on the market that are there to help you manage a model for an AI system, just like you would manage a data model for a database, because that's something that you need to have structure and how it changes and evolving. So is it real? Yes. Is there a lot of uh, smoke noise uh, fumes and some output. Yes. <laughs> it's still, I think relatively early and I wouldn't, uh, you know, I wouldn't change my job title quite yet, right. but <laughs> I personally, I think that there's a there there, but it really works well if the process is static and it's not going to change a lot. And you pretty much know that it's routine and you have people doing something that is probably from their perspective, equivalent to drudgery. And, and that may be the ideal use case. The problem is, is when there is new data and event or new events, the model will start to drift because it wasn't trained for those events. And then it will start to incorporate that and try to learn what to do. But, you know, that can be hit or miss. And as a good friend of mine once said, it's one thing to be wrong. It's quite another thing to be wrong at scale. And these things can have you wrong in a level of scale that would uh, be catastrophic in some use cases. Well, it's, and, it's an, and it's yet another thing to be wrong and do something wrong. <laughs> you know, there, there's using the information that comes out of an AI algorithm, learning system, whatever it is. There's another automating it so that it automatically happens. And, you know, we've learned that lesson in cybersecurity you know, for a long time of you don't just block attacks, for example, and an intrusion prevention system it was a great idea, but guess what? It happens so many times in cases where you don't want it to, that now it's a problem. So yeah, it's, there's, we've learned some lessons, you know, for fortunately as leaders that we just need to re make sure we don't have to relearn them <laughs> again. Yeah. Well, let's shift to my next topic because it's kind of related in my mind, but I, I don't hear many people conjoining the two topics, but 
there's a lot of talk about observability these days, mm-hmm. which is, you know, the next flavor of monitoring. It's the idea that uh, today we monitor things using metrics that we create that we know, and we need observability tools that will analyze things that we don't know or the unknown and tell us about that. And a lot of that, in my mind, feeds into the notion of how we're going to inform these AI models to train for IT operations. But there seems to be a big conversation about something called the observability gap. And the gap seems to be between IT operations teams have a lot of tools to look at things, and then developers seem to have no tools, and yet we want to ship things left. So do we need to somehow close this gap between developers and IT operations teams around observability, or, um, or or maybe we're already doing it and people just aren't using it. But it seems to me like the two sides have completely different tools and they try to meet in the middle and nothing good happens. You know, there, there of course, like all of our terms, there's multiple definitions of what this stuff means. Observability, from what I know of it, really initially came out of traceability of how do we take things that are more um, you know, cloud-native, containerized, uh, service mesh kinds of microservices, kinds of architectures, because as we deploy those apps, you know, that's like, it's like managing a, a, a cube versus a Rubik's cube, right? There's all these little piece parts and no one in operations knows what all those piece parts do or how they communicate. So observability out of a from traceability from 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 that world came about to help us better manage this new technology cloud called cloud native and help us understand what's going. It's a lot of good thing things that like open telemetry and open source projects that have helped with that. There's a whole bunch of them. And then more broadly, um, I think the the kind of log management organizations have adopted the next generation of monitoring, right? which is rather than just presenting a bunch of events that you try to write dashboards for and, you know, alert people to do something about it is how do you get more insight into what's happening into an application or to a software stack? Because the software stack is also dynamic and changing now, right? You have infrastructure software, you have different services across clouds and it's a bit tough Uh, around your point of, of, um, of developers kind of not having the tools. I, w- I wonder, and I, I don't know the answer to this. You know, that's something I've been looking at is, is the issue, how do we design our applications so that they are more observable so we can see inside of it? It used to be just add, add more log messages, log everything that an app is doing so that a log management system can start to use that for diagnosing and presenting what's happening. Um, but I think it's a little more complex with that because now we have, API-centric applications where the whole app is built on calling its own APIs, not just as an external access into an app. And again, we sort of have this porous software architecture design that how do you know what's happening in an environment where that thing lived a thousand times in a, in a, a container orchestration platform like Kubernetes and it's gone the next 10 minutes, right? I think that we got a long way to go here, but I think <laughs> digital CXOs should look at this space and then borrow some of these concepts and apply them to the processes that they're trying to manage because a lot of the same issues affect those, right? I have a bunch of metrics for tracking 
some order to catch thing, but I really don't have an observability thing that tells me that there are anomalies starting to show up in that process and what do they mean and what should I do about that? So I think that this observability trend on the DevOps side of the world is going to play through to all kinds of processes down the line, but then we got to walk before we run. So let's hope we get there someday let me, soon. Let me ask you about that. I'm curious your thoughts, Mike, on this, uh, because if you take it just out of a IT realm, of a technology realm, there's also the, you know, if we're living in the world where we want to be able to deploy fat software quickly and pull it back quickly because we want to be able to experiment and market, there's data that comes with that, right? We put this new offering or this new way of configuring a product in this part of the market in the cloud in this geographic region. Well, we need data about all that and what's happening. You're going to write an app to tell you what it's doing? No, you're going to take observability tracing data and use that, but not just for IT, but for the business. So I think I agree with what you're saying. And I think there's an evolutionary process beyond the, the kind of IT thinking around it, but to a business thinking as well. Yeah, I look forward to it. One of these days, the left hand will know what the right hand is doing. But right now, we'll got to take our time to figure it out. Let's shift gears a little bit here. But this is a subject that is near and dear to most digital CXOs in the sense that they all equally hate it, compliance. Right now, we spend a fortune filling out forms for governments to make sure regulations are all set and we're all good. Um, the issue is that it takes forever. You have to hire all these people. Um, there's talk now about shifting compliance left, and I think CloudBees bought a company called Neuroprints that's an example mm -hmm. of that. But the idea here is that we're going to programmatically sh put the controls for meeting all the compliance regulations in the application. The developers are going to do that. And we just got to wait for a compliance guy to define a policy. So can we just reduce the cost of compliance? Because right now it's killing these companies. It's necessary, but it's expensive. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of optimism right now about compliance. I don't know if that's a way I might have said that in the past. Usually it's, you know, one of those things at the end that everybody dredges, right? Okay, got to do that. Got to do testing, got to do security. So let's shift it all left. And, you know, Mike, the, the definition of shift left has evolved from, we don't need all these other things that developers will do it to. No, we still need all those things and people who do it. We just have to figure out how to make it part of, the process, part of the pipeline, the workflow, the things that happen in software creation. This is an area actually right now as we speak, uh, TechStrong Research is doing a lot of work in. Uh, we have a study underway and we'll be producing some results from this for the financial and financial services industry. Where we're looking at asking the question, okay, you have DevOps and you have automated tool automation, uh, automation of software processes. This all creates you know, lots of data about what's happening, some of which we normally wouldn't either have or we would have to go manually take that and figure out how to put it in some reportable form for compliance and, and uh, regulatory processes, governance processes. Well, can't we use tools to do that to help us um, either at the end or better build in some of those kind of metrics that we want to monitor. And that's why you see CloudBees and others making these kind of acquisitions. So some of the in, some of the interesting findings from that research, I think, and I was pretty surprised to see, um, 
when you, of course, when you're talking about finance and financial services, you're talking about larger organizations. So, you know, much more regulated as well. There's a lot of um, optimism. And by that, I mean, showing up in the data as people saying that they're, you know, either depending on the wording of the question, but they're, you know, they are more likely to or very likely to leverage uh, tool automation for gathering the data or putting data into a format that can be leveraged for utilized for compliance testing, et cetera. So go to, go to techstrongresearch.com. Um, of course, a close working partnership with uh, Digital CXO, and we'll publish some information. Mike, figure out how you would like to get that on the Digital CXO site too. Um, so we can share some of this research because some really compelling information coming about. And it's it's still early, but there's a lot more progress made than, and I don't want to say the problem's been solved. I'm not saying that, but a lot more than I thought I would have seen. But then, you know, what is uh, necessity is the mother of invention, right? I think we have so much activity and compliance and regulation that we've got to find a way to, it's a moving target and people not only trying to keep up with it, but get ahead of it where you can. Let me ask you about a different regulation that's starting to show up. There's a lot of interest in climate change. A lot of companies are setting their own policies and they're trying to adjust the things that are being mandated in Europe and are different places around the world and even different states here in the U.S. Um, one of the things that's come up, though, is we are trying to count carbon. And a lot of folks are saying, well, if you really want to have a more efficient way of consuming IT, then you maybe should shift everything up into the cloud because it's a shared resource versus everybody who has their own individual data center that's a charge against their carbon emission for their company and their organization. So do you think that carbon may wind up being one of the things that pushes the last few remnants of those data centers that are out there into the cloud. I know there's plenty of them still, but it looks like to me, at least there's a conversation to be had that said, Hey, if Amazon is providing the infrastructure and consuming all the electricity and then the carbon charges on them versus me, and they're promising to be carbon emissions neutral. So maybe that's the way to go. What do you think? Well, it's it's been part of the conversation. We've you know talked about carbon taxes and things like that. You know, over the years, uh, what's interesting to me is yes, there's the regulatory side of this. I think companies have also, because it is more present in the minds of the general population. You know, some more than others, um, but folks are are very organizations are very conscious of of how they communicate what they're doing you know, around uh, the climate crisis and, and global warming and things like climate change, things like that. Um, the challenge is, as you, like any regulatory framework, that can be very different across the world, right? The U.S. looks different than me, a little different than Canada, looks a lot different than EU, et cetera. Um, will it push us all into the cloud? Maybe. I, I'm, I don't think that's the thing that will push us. I mean, I, can't, I don't think it's going to be a regulation that says you need to be at this carbon footprint. Um, and so, yeah, by default, you have to be in the cloud. I mean, that's, that's potentially possible. There, there is a real interest in organizations around designing their products uh, and understanding the, the carbon footprint ecological impact of the product themselves. 
from the materials that go into making a product. And I say this is because one of the companies that I advise is does this. They have a database of different manufacturing processes, um, different kinds of um, materials, and what all those things add up to when you eventually get to making the product. But all those decisions, kind of the shift left of making products for for being ecologically sound or improving the the um, the climate is is how you design those things. So it's very much forefront of organizations mind because they know it's not it's like a supply chain it's not a simple thing to turn it on and we're going to be you know sensitive to this it affects a lot of things so well i'm not answering your question directly or be it's going to push us into the cloud i think it is it is very much uh, on top of mind and organizations are doing things in this space it's going to be a much bigger factor and i think as we go into 2022 There'll be some interesting conversations that IT people will be having where they never factor that into their thought process until somebody from corporate showed up and said, you know what, we're moving in the cloud and it has nothing to do with any of the metrics that you've been evaluating. It just has to do with um, the perception of the company, the brand, and our overall goal to get to zero carbon emissions. But we'll see. Mm -hmm. Last question to you. Do we need to rethink our entire approach to remote computing? I feel like... Everybody, you know, patted themselves in the back. They got everybody working from home after the pandemic. The pandemic went on a lot longer than anybody thought. Some cases, people are coming back to the office. Other cases, people are not coming back. Some companies are saying, hey, this is great. We can recruit from anywhere we want. We don't have to be limited to people who can drive and get to the office within two hours either way. But ultimately, Everything that people are doing, it seems like you know they're dependent upon VPNs for the most part, and they're um, people are using wireless access points that are consumer grade. The machines they have, some are uh, enterprise grade, and others are not. Um, is it time as we go into twenty twenty two for people to rethink their entire approach to remote computing? And if so, where do you start? Well, in a way, it's kind of like taking the bring your own device, BYOD on crack, steroids, everything else, right? It's kind of like, so whatever control you thought you had, you don't have, right? Because even if you're using a remote VPN of personal VPN, corporate VPN, you're having your employees do that. They're still on their home wireless access point. And it creates questions and issues of, so where does the corporate network begin and end? Where does our ability to look into control, say you have to do certain things a certain way, begin and end? Are you using a corporate machine? Yeah, but you're still on home, you know, home uh, equipment. I think that we always like to think this is it. This is the answer. Everybody can work at home now. We have proven that we can all work remotely. Well, we have because we had to, right? Or at least many of us did. Um, and there were some really good things that came out of it. We're not going to swing back to doing everybody back to the office. We're also not going to stay in a world where all of us work remote because I think we're starting to get back together and see the benefits of everybody, you know, flying to New York or to, you know, to Omaha or wherever the headquarters is and saying, let's get in a room, let's work on this, let's spend a day and a half together and fly back home. And people are like, wow, we got, we got things done there. We've not gotten done on WebEx or Zoom or GoToMeeting or whatever we're using. Um, so I think, I think we have to 
rethink of it as not A or B, but this blended of A, B, C, D, G, E, and F of all these variables of work anywhere. And because I'm not going to be working at home all the time, I'm not all going to be working in the office remotely. There's some interesting work we did, TechStrong Research did around um, how, how much did software developers influence the organizations of every, as everybody moved to work remotely? Because software engineers, many of them have been working remote. Like I can code on a plane. I can work on it from the hotel room. I can work on it in the Starbucks or I can do it in the office. They've been doing that. Some organizations for you know five, 10 years, some developers, salespeople the same way. They, they work that way now. So yes, I think we re- need we re- need to rethink it. One of the things that we've learned in our organization is you can't take the current model and just turn it into a dupe, uh, a, a digital clone in a digital world. You can't take an in person conference and turn it into a digital clone on whatever pl- virtual platform. It doesn't work. Some things work. A lot of things don't work. And you got to rethink it. What are the answers? You know, I don't know. A lot of smart people, including you, are thinking about those kind of challenges, Mike. I think that if you don't revisit it, you're asking for trouble because eventually there's going to be either a compliance issue or a security issue. The consumer grade technologies and some of the protocols that are used for the underlying remote access have been shown to be problematic. Um, there's a lot of ways to go skin this particular cat. And to your point, you might wind up using a mix of them, or you may decide to standardize on whether it's called a SASE network or some other clientless approach that people are talking about. Um, you know, the reason we're having this chat is uh, Menlo Security has this survey out that says at the very least, people are reconsidering their options. Mm-hmm. No one's making a commitment yet. It's a little early and they may not fully bake it even in the next year because it is complicated and there's a lot of moving parts. But I just think we've gotten a little complacent with uh, our current success. A lot of organizations, especially C-level execs, might want to take a minute and say, what is the right thing that we should be doing, you know, that we built for purpose versus something that we kind of smashed together in the matter of four or five days and now we haven't done anything since. Well, and that is happening, and there's a lot of evidence of that, and you could see it sort of earlier this year, kind of in the second quarter where folks started to, okay, now we're going to start to going, be going back and potentially doing more in-person things you know, on whatever time schedule we don't know yet. Um, let's go back and revisit what, what we slammed into place because we had to. We didn't have a choice. You know, It might have been good. might have been not good, but we had to do what we had to do. So organizations are, re- are rethinking that. And, and topics like, you know, we haven't heard about data leakage. What about data leakage on Zoom and WebEx and Slack and every other tool that we now use that we weren't concerned? We didn't have time to be concerned about. I mean, there's so many factors to this um, that, I th- that are, I think are being rethought. You know, what's not clear what all the answers, you know, is there a trend to, oh, yeah, everybody's moving to this next thing. Yeah, I know the security world, network security world, I guess, cybersecurity world has some frameworks that have been put together. And, you know, we've done some work with, with Menlo also. And, uh, you know, secure web gateways, things that, you know, kind of replacing application gateways and pushing things into 
secure browser sessions, et cetera. A lot of things that can be done. You know, is there a new set of folks are generally moving in these three areas? Now, I don't see that yet, but I agree with you. It's we have to rethink it because that's what we've got is what we were doing. We're just doing it remotely the wrong way now, <laughs> but it's working. We get, but how do we how do we take it to the next place? Exactly, because the bar to get me out of my home office is very high now. For me to actually drive across town to go to a meeting in the office has to be a good one. And to get me on a plane is going to be like even higher. So um, if that's the case, then folks, we got to find a better way to secure this conversation and manage it remotely. And who knows, maybe we should just buy the employees their access points and their machines and manage it as a service, whatever it's going to be. It can't be what it currently is, or we're all asking for trouble. Hey, Mitch, thanks for being on the show. Hey, Mike. Great, great conversation. Great topics. Love talking to you. All right. And thank you all for listening to our show. On the Digital CXO website, you can find complete episodes as well as show notes with links to the stories we discussed today. And you can also follow us on your favorite social media platform and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. We'll see you all next time.